Namaste and good evening to all of you. Might be a bit loud, I can hear a lot of echo, but this hall has a different acoustics. We are continuing tonight with uh, trying to understand what has Jesus said and done from a spiritual standpoint and how that fits in the spirituality of yoga. How do we understand it from the standpoint of chakras, planes of the universe, laws of nature, spiritual laws, and in this way to attain a cross-fertilization between the two things. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt with trivia also, but uh, I really need at least one fan, and this one is pointing to the light, and this one is not doing anything. This one could be pointed to me as well. More. Now you're now you're talking. So we were interrupted and in, uh, we stopped last week when we we're talking about the episode where Jesus makes a bigger experiment. We were told that in the winter before. He sent the twelve apostles to hibernate, to, to spend winter in the villages of Judea, and there to perform spiritual missionary work. And now, a bit later, after he gave some teachings, the things which we discussed perhaps in the last five, six satsangs, now suddenly we see a bigger experiment. After this, there will be the final experiment in which Jesus ascends to heaven and Christianity starts its existence on the face of planet Earth. Now he sends 72, a sort of extended team. Again, numerologically very meaningful. This is the 12 multiplied six times over. Six times being like half a dozen, being like a significant number in a society. Many of the old societies, they are counting by the dozen. That's why most of the numbers in most of the languages, they have special names for 11 and 12. Because those were different, were considered to be different. And then when you get, you have 13, 14. 15, but you don't have one teen for 11 or two teen for 12. So I'm saying this because uh, you should be aware that the number 12 was quite significant before time. And for yogis, that is multiple, in multiple ways significant. First of all, because 12 refers to the horoscope to the astrological signs of the zodiac. I don't know if you are aware, actually, that the zodiac, if you look at it with the eyes of a total, of a person completely not involved with constellations and astrology, the zodiac doesn't present any special clusters. Like you can divide the zodiac in 10. You can divide the zodiac in 16. You can divide the zodiac in 13. 
but that's a common thing in astronomy, where they would say that what is called today the astrological sign of the Scorpio is actually the former, the front half, which is the, that's actually the backward half of the Scorpio, which is the legs of the front legs of the Scorpio, and that actually can be described as an eagle, an eagle with two wings like this, and then the tail of the Scorpio is nothing else but a snake. So instead of the Scorpio, you have 13 zodiacal signs, which are the snake in the first, in the end part of October and the first part of November, and then in the middle part of November you have the eagle. So actually that you have 13 astrological signs. But 13 sucks. It's a very bad name, number. And therefore nobody wants to have 13 astrological signs. Why? Because if you eliminate the astrological sign paradigm and you look at the zodiac with fresh eyes, you can see anything. It's just some dots. And the fact that you can imagine those three dots do this or that, you know, it's like you can do almost any combination of them. That's why the fact that astrology, way before the time of Jesus, had to decide we have the zodiac and we are divided it in 12, that's super meaningful because 12 is the number of the sun for the same reason, and 12 is the number of spokes of Anahata Chakra, which is already a much more anatomical thing. It's the energy, anatomy, of the human being. And as above, so below. The human being copies the universe. And thus, the number 12 is very significant for these people, because it has a connection to Anahata Chakra. And therefore, multiples of 12 and other things like this, they are considered to be part of the special numbers. Like 12 times 7 is 84. 84 is another splendid number. There are 84 classical texts in some traditions. There are 84 classical asanas in Hatha Yoga. There are, according to some traditions, 84,000 nadis in the human body, and the list could continue. I'm telling you all these things to understand that even the fact that Jesus chose 72 people, you can say, yeah, but Jesus was in a sort of a permanent samadhi. Jesus was in a state of permanent communion. Because of this, Jesus was in a state of permanent karma yoga, like what he did was a permanent consecration. And because of this, when Jesus said, you, 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 and uh, those three there also, please come. And suddenly when they counted, they were 72. And Jesus didn't bother to use his brain to count them. It just happened. So, because of a sort of a miraculous synchronicity. Because Jesus, by definition, cannot do something which is not 
archetypal, not aligned with the numerological archetypes and others of the same kind. And that is the reason. Therefore, of course, there is a meaning. So Jesus has a team of 12, which are the CEOs of his future initiative. And then he has some lower, the next level, and there he has 72. It's the same pyramid structure. On top of the whole thing, there is Jesus. After Jesus, there comes the archetypal man and the archetypal woman, which are John the Baptist and Virgin Mary. And after those two, it's one, two, and after those, there come the twelve apostles. Actually, even in the apostles, some of them seem to be a little bit more special, because not all the twelve apostles are known to have written Gospels. There are four favorite ones which wrote the four Gospels. There are not twelve Gospels. It would have been beautiful to see in the Bible twelve Gospels, not four. The same story said by each and every one of those twelve, each one of them in their own way. But no, they were only four, so it's like those four or what? They were maybe the only ones which were literate, and the others were rather illiterate. They were the ones which were more articulate, or more intelligent, or more... Like, how do you define them? Why there are not twelve different Gospels? Like, they gave to each other a task in the council. After Jesus passed away and raised to heaven, then they said, you know what? Each and every one of you write this story the way you have seen it. And we'll have 12 stories. No, it didn't happen that way. And thus, we have this pyramid structure. Jesus is one. And then it gets more and more 12 apostles, 72 something. I don't know how to call them. Maybe semi-apostles, almost apostles, apostles to be, or something like this. It's the next line. And after that, there comes a multitude. So, Jesus is extending the experiment. Realize that Jesus is pushing the envelope. Jesus is making his own experiments. Because he starts realizing he has a mission. He has been on Mount Tavor, and he became light. And there he spoke with Moses and Elijah, who told him, now, if you really want to go the full Monte, you'll have to get crucified. You know, like that. You have to push it to the last level. If you do that, you will be the Christ. If you do that, you will be the king of this world. You know, so it's like, if you don't have that much trust, and which of course we would understand, anybody would understand, you know, it's like, maybe it doesn't happen. So... Jesus is upgrading his mission all the time. He learns something from what's happening to him. And now he is going like on the last straight line. Now there is a hundred meters left of his race to the end. And now he's pushing the envelope. He sent 12 disciples last winter. Now he is going for another bigger experiment. He will send 72 
And you are going to say those 72, they cannot be as strong as those 12. Because they are lower in the pyramid, right? 12 is here and 72 is here. But on the other hand, you forget the collective mind. The fact that 72 will go in in 36 different cities and villages. And they will stir up many more people. And it's like the famous principle discovered in biology and uh, mentioned often by Robert Sheldrake, which is called the principle of the 100 monkeys. That when 100 monkeys do the same thing, some things become part of the collective subconscious mind of that tribe of monkeys or of all the monkeys in the world. And thus, here he is playing with the 100 monkey effect. For him it's the 72 monkey effect, the monkeys being his own apostles. And so he sends them. And I started last time in describing because here he gives a longer advice, list of to do and what not to do. And it's interesting. That's how Jesus sees his emissaries in the world. That's how they should live. In a certain way, What Jesus tells to the 72 people applies to us. Let's suppose that one of you becomes a truly spiritual person. A truly spiritual person, first of all, in the meaning that you say, I give my life to God. I don't know, I have lived so many years of my life. Right now I choose that the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of my life I'm going to make an experiment. No, You could give your life to God, as we saw a movie not long time, maybe you'll play it in the school, as uh, you know, you go into a monastery, and there you simply sign a paper that you give your life to God and so on. But uh, Ramakrishna didn't sign any paper. He was just living in a temple sponsor. He was a priest, he was a pujari, he was a brahmin, and he definitely gave his life to God. And thus, in this way, um, it applies like, okay, I'm a spiritual person. If I'm a spiritual person, I can be silent about it, but sometimes, you know, and I can bring as argument, oh, it's an esoteric thing, not everybody can understand these things. The other people, they don't want to be disturbed with this. Why should I speak about spirituality to people who are selfish and who, you know, if they don't ask me, please, 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 please teach me something, why should I teach them something, you know, and so on. But on the other hand, it may sound a bit selfish, right? Because I'm going there and saying, I know something amazing and I'm not sharing it with people. Try to think only about this, that you learn yoga very well. Many of you here are relative beginners in yoga. Like when when you have learned one, two, three, five, six levels of yoga, you still don't know the big things of yoga. You know some. And I'm not saying this because I want to tease you. I want to say this because you should have a clear perspective of where you are placed in the process of learning of yoga. Like there exist 84 classical asanas. Let's just speak about hatha yoga. 
Well, do you know what the 84 classical asanas are? Can you perform at least 60 out of those 84? Do, no, like, that's why I say, okay, some people have done the first level of Agama, they have learned 20 asanas, and they think that they know yoga. No? So obviously, we, but you have, let's say you really get to know yoga. And then when you get to know yoga, one of the things which you will know is that there are health issues which can be addressed by yoga, and then there are health issues which cannot very well be addressed by yoga. As I often say in my first lecture every month, that if you have a car accident, you, there's not much you can do with yoga when you're crushed and you have 20 bones broken and you are lying in plaster in a surgical bed. No, what, what can you do with yoga? The only thing which you can do is some creative visualization, some affirmations, some, you know, but mental yoga. Maybe you can still do mental yoga, and with a little bit of indulgence, maybe you can do a bit of breathing, pranayama. But besides that, what can you do? No? And thus, um, you know that a lot of things cannot be done by yoga, but you know that a lot of things can be done. So if, for example, I have discovered that cancer is a problem of the pranic body, and by modifying the pranic body, you can deal with cancer. And when I see that 600 people in my country die every day because of cancer, am I not feeling a bit guilty that I know what could be done and I'm not saying it? And I'm not saying it because I'm afraid that there will be consequences. I'm afraid that the medical association will level a trial against me, will sue me in court, just trying to shut me up, actually. No? But then do I have the guts to actually stand against this and say whatever you say, this is my truth, this is what I stand for, and that's it, if, even if you put me to prison or you shoot me, that's the truth which I'm going to shout from the rooftops. You know, like, therefore, a spiritual person, inevitably, the percentage differs, but inevitably a spiritual person going in the world will spread spirituality. At least that they will speak about alternative healing of diseases, if not more than that, because spirituality is, of course, much more than alternative healing, which is not even the tip of the iceberg. It's less than the tip of the iceberg. And thus, of course, that what Jesus says to the 72, it applies to each and every one of us. Any one of you becomes a spiritual, a convinced spiritual person, and you go through the rest of the years of your life, you are like the 72 of Jesus. I, myself, I am not a practicing Christian in any denomination. I have taken upon the Hindu spirituality, and I became a Swami. I renounced all the religions of the world, and all the sectarianisms, and all the things, and therefore I don't have anything in special to favor on Christianity. Most people from the Catholic Christianity, and especially from the Orthodox Christianity, where my country is placed, they say in those environments that yoga is the work of the devil. 
and that I am a lost soul. Therefore, I owe no favor to Christianity of any form. But still, I'm talking to people about Jesus. Because as a yogi, just like Ramakrishna did before me, and just like Yogananda and Ramana, and just like Shivananda and Aurobindo and others, I cannot not see that Jesus is right and Jesus is divine according to the principles of yoga. Fantastically, I'm born in a Christian country and I came back to Jesus via yoga. Yoga brought me back because I was thinking that Jesus perhaps doesn't even exist and even if he exists, it's just a sort of a stupid superstition which my grandmother had. And my grandmother probably hadn't finished eight grades in school or nine grades in school. No, so it's like Jesus was some superstition for uneducated, stupid people. That's how I thought when I was 15. No? And then when I encountered yoga and spirituality, I discovered that actually the yogis themselves were looking upon Jesus with veneration and all that. So that's why I say, if you are spiritual, even outside of religion, you will speak about spiritual and religious things like I'm talking to you tonight about Jesus. And thus, in a certain way, I am one of the 72, although I didn't plan to be one of the 72, and I don't belong to any organized form of Christianity. I'm not sent here by some secret church in Romania to pretend that I am a yogi and to preach to you Christianity in disguise and bring the lost sheep back to the Christian um, church, to the Christian umbrella. No, I don't. And yet, many people have started loving Jesus, including a lot of Jewish people, because they were into these satsangs and yoga courses and this. But of course, they also learned to love Shiva. They also started understanding Krishna. They understood many other, understood Islam and great spirits of Islam like Rumi and others. That means we are talking here about spirituality without denomination in the pure form. But what Jesus says addresses to you because Jesus says when you go in the name of God you should rather behave like this and like that and your life should you become a implicit apostle even involuntarily then these rules are what a divine spirit like Jesus said you should behave approximately like this and you are going to see that some of them are not very friendly in the meaning that Jesus has a spine because he represents the verticality, he represents spirit, he represents God. And he is not willing to make compromises beyond a certain level. It's the same in a, at a much, much lower level. It's the same which happens with Agama. 
people say, oh, we will forgive Agama if Agama is doing this compromise and that compromise. Not possible. Not possible. No. From a spiritual standpoint, there does not exist. The rules are laid as I have shown. And therefore, you remember that he said, pray for workers, like pray that God makes a list of 72 enlightened beings, and you are on that list, because a new religion is going to explode in the Roman Empire, and you are going to be the apostles of that religion. And you cannot be the apostles of that religion if you are not enlightened. So I'm praying, Father, please give me these 12, maybe even these 72, give, put them all in Samadhi, because I need 72 Samadhi people to go through the Roman Empire. Some of them will die, some of them will, you know, but I go 72 madmen to go and preach the good news and so on. And he says, also you pray, because otherwise God said, yeah, yeah, Jesus, how enthusiastic you are. Sure, you're asking me for this, but... Did you, have, did you ever ask those people if they want to spend their life running as your agents through the world? Why don't they pray by using their own free will, by using their own conscience? Let me hear them, that they ask to be the empowered. And then maybe I will empower them if I feel it's the right time and the right thing to do. But, see, it doesn't even work if Jesus alone prays. Each and every human being has the Spirit of God in them. And they have to pray themselves. They have to say, yes, I want, I ask, please give me. But you know it's a big responsibility for the rest of your life. Yes, I know it's a big responsibility for the rest of my life. And I'm still asking for it. Then God is happy. God says, well, I've got a whole bunch. I don't know. Jesus is really good. You know, because I have a whole bunch of fanatics down there. And all of them want to go full on. And all of them, they are asking for the light. Give us the light. Give us the light. Give us the light. Because the revolution is coming. And then God being super natural. And at the same time being supramental being something above the mind itself, can decide on the grace, can perform the grace. And thus, things are happening in history. So, Jesus is telling them, pray, go like lambs among the wolves, do not take a bag or something, do not even greet anyone on the road. Like you are not going on some sort of PR for God. You have to be focused. You go on a mission. And you don't interrupt yourself chit-chatting with people. You are focused. Then he says, when you enter a house, say peace to this house. And if this, stay in that house eating and drinking whatever they give you. You see, Jesus here puts this surrender even above vegetarianism. We don't know if Jesus is vegetarian or pescarian or semi-vegetarian or it doesn't matter. He doesn't include it. He simply says, you go into a house and those people give you something from their heart, eat, eat. Don't start saying, yeah, but you know I'm vegetarian. Oh shit, go and make some mashed potatoes for this idiot. No, because he's not eating our kind of food. It's offensive. It's not from the heart. 
See, we in yoga, we have this thing. I'm going in somebody's house, I'm not eating whatever they give me. I'm vegetarian, so it's like, I'm maybe my heart is not as open as that, because I'm having some rules. Those rules are made for me. I benefit from being vegetarian. I keep myself pure. I don't take karma by participating in the killing of the animals. So it's more for me. It's more a selfish thing. No, but if I were to completely surrender, I would say, you know what, God will, the providence will make that in the houses where I go, they will give me vegetarian food. And if not, that's a sign from God that I shouldn't be vegetarian. Like I can practice a surrender which is absolutely complete, absolutely mad. No? Which again, I have not been sent by Jesus personally in flesh to go and obey these rules. So I am free to obey to the rules of my gurus and of the people from the lineages where I have learned yoga, which rules are slightly different. But on the other hand, I can look here and, and understand these rules and see the wisdom, the spirituality and the purity in these rules. No? And simply say there are multiple ways of climbing a mountain and my way of climbing the mountain is not exactly this way of climbing the mountain. But what is important is that we are climbing the same mountain. And I am very uh, happy to see other people's rules which are close to mine but not quite the same. So, the worker deserves his wages. I told you this is to destroy these absurd versions of karma yoga in which karma yoga should be done in a self-destructive way. No. The worker also needs his wages, like Jesus himself eats from time to time, Pro probably on a regular basis, because otherwise people would have written. In such a detailed story, they would have written. And by the way, the Lord was eating only every five days. Once in five days, he was deigning to put something. And for the rest, we were all amazed, because he was not eating, but he was not losing weight as well. No, this has never been written. In any text, even apocryphal texts, and therefore we know it's not true. We know that Jesus was going around, probably eating like everybody, like everybody else. So, and he gives them, do not move around from house to house. And I explained to you that was the final argument in our previous satsang, where I told you that there is a thing in spirituality and even in modern science, against the nomadic spirit. Don't be a nomad. Like yin and yang, in the middle of yin there is a dot of yang that simply says, while spirituality says, build a hut, sit there, do your hatha yoga, do your meditation, get food every day, and continue until you reach the state of samadhi. And that's the way to go. In Indian spirituality, as well as in Christian spirituality, there are a handful of people who practice this nomadic spirit on purpose. For example, the sadhus from India, some of the Naga Babas, these guys who go naked, they have the rule, but they don't respect it, not all of them, definitely. They have the rule 
where they are supposed to never spend more than three days in the same spot on earth. Like if they go to an ashram, there they find good food, shelter, it's the rainy season. After maximum 72 hours, they have to go. They have to go. Because they get used to the ashram, they found themselves a cozy little nice place where they will become tamasic, spoiled, good food coming for free regularly, a house provided to you for free. No, 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 no. You're not supposed to do that. No, because then you become attached to material comforts such as food and house and others. So, there exists this. One of the disciples of Francis of Assisi also did this practice. I don't, I forgot exactly his name. One of the saints which Francis of Assisi produced among his disciples, he did that. He took that discipline without probably knowing of it from India. Or maybe he heard it from the caravans coming through the Silk Road that somebody was telling stories and they heard it and they got inspired. This man, he was probably very attached to his place, like this is my bed. And in the night, like in a shelter, I come in a shelter and nothing belongs to me. It's all belonging to the government. But this is my bed because for the last three nights I slept in it and now I made it mine. Mine, 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 mine. The possessiveness, you know? And then he also had this. Probably he knew that he was possessive in this way and attached. And he took the discipline never more than three days in the same place. So, but isn't this nomadism? Yes, this is a nomadic spirit, but it is done in a very high state of consciousness where the whole purpose is that you don't want to attach yourself to material things. But the nations on this earth, which are nomadic, they actually are very attached to material goods, and they steal and they plunder, and they are ready to kill if somebody comes to steal their pots or their horses or whatever they own, whatever their goods are. So actually these people are not nomadic because they are detached. These people are nomadic because of other causes, and I told you last week that this nomadism is a manifestation of Svadhisthana Chakra. That's why the young people of today, the backpackers, so-called, the guys who do the full moon, probably this very night, I don't remember exactly when the party goes on, those people are Svadhisthanistic souls who now are here, then they are in Goa, then they go to Bali, and this need to constantly roam, 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 like a gypsy who moves his tent and always is somewhere else, this is just Svadhisthana. This is a consciousness on Svadhisthana. So the nomadic cultures are cultures which are quite Svadhisthanistic and because of this confused and not very high spiritually. Together with sitting down, it's like this is <coughs> my piece of land. This can bring some attachment on Muladhara, but it also brings the authority on Manipura. Like then we have a government, we have a village head, we have the laws and the regulations of our village, of our island, of our country. There comes a system of laws. There come other things which rise the civilization to Manipura. 
And then one day a Jesus is coming and the civilization tries to rise to Anahata even. So it's a way of growing. It's like the natural way of growing. Nomadic cultures cannot grow beyond a certain level. So uh, Jesus, the last in uh, advice, he said, do not move around from house to house. Which again has so many other connotations, but because Jesus is going to extend this further, I prefer to read more and then to go there. He says, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Again, the same thing. Don't start saying, oh, we are disciples of Jesus, we eat only uh, whipped cream, you know, it's like only whipped cream goes for us, you know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, simplicity, modesty, and all the things which come with it. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Amazing what is hidden in this little sentence. He says, heal the sick, but Jesus is not really a doctor. We know that Jesus is at the best, you can say, he's the doctor of the soul of people. Although Jesus did countless medical miracles, healing actions, the heritage of Christianity is not so much of health. Like in the 12th, in the 10th century, the Arab countries, they were having much stronger medicine than the Christian countries in the medieval times. English doctors, they were going to learn from Avicenna in uh, Samarkand or some place like this, far, far in Central Asia. They had brilliant doctors. One of those doctors discovered the cure for appendicitis. There was no cure for a, no surgical cure, and it was found by Avicenna or one of his disciples in the 12th century or something like this. No? Like Christians were not famous for their medical science. There were many Jewish doctors. There were many Islamic doctors. But Christian doctors, only later, much later, when the society went into the industrial age, then we can speak about the great French doctors of the 19th century or the great uh, whatever other doctors of different countries, uh, maybe starting even in the 18th century with uh, uh, Hahnemann, Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of uh, homeopathy and so on, but very little. It was not the main thing. The heritage of Christianity is definitely not physical health. Christianity was actually quite filthy from the standpoint of physical health. People were not washing their bodies. A lot of other things were done or not done. And the Christian cities and the Christian countries were definitely not the most clean, the cleanest places on earth. And yet Jesus gives them and he says, heal the sick who are there. Like first thing, you know, eat what they give you, heal the sick. Why? Because healing the sick is excellent PR. It's an excellent giver of goodwill. Jesus, in a certain way, is manipulating because the spirit which these 12 people and the spirit which these 72 people carried on for the next 30 years after Jesus was dead, 
or gone from this world, if you prefer, that spirit was not including much about hygiene and prophylactic health measures and stuff like this. It was not. So healing was more like a demonstration of power. It was more like gaining goodwill. Hey, we came to your community sent by Jesus and let's heal. In later times, that's what the Catholics were doing. They were opening hospitals in Congo or wherever because this is an excellent way to get the goodwill of people. It's part of the missionary work. You cannot heal like Peter just by raising your hand. And therefore you heal with penicillin. But hey, healing with penicillin in Africa or in South America, it's a sort of a miracle from, from their standpoint, from the level of their medical knowledge, and it's a way of gaining goodwill. The same thing can be said with yoga. No? If you practice your yoga and to show to some people how to heal themselves, you have gained their hearts. That's why, in my opinion, everybody should be quite good at healing through yoga because it's like it's your business card. When you go somewhere, people ask, hey, what can you do? Well, if you have a problem, I can show you, you know? It's, you don't do it like Jesus. Focus, focus, abracadabra, boom. And then the person is, the blind can see. Very few people get that level of paranormal ability and have such power. But when you advise somebody to do a Shankaprakshalana and then their cancer is gone, it's like, shit man, how did he do it? No, like this, I, I need to hear this more. This person really knows something. No? And therefore, this is not to be forgotten, the medical part of yoga or of anything. And tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Such an amazing trick. If it would be done by a bad person, it would be called manipulation. Gross manipulation. But because it's done by Jesus, it would be called spiritual genius. You heal a person and you tell them the kingdom of God is near you. First of all, let's see the simple part of it. The simple part of it is that when you say that, and the person has just been healed. So they are receptive, yeah? And the person is told, now I who healed you, I'm also telling you, the kingdom of God is near you. It's coming. Now Jesus is here. Things are imminent. What does that do? That gives hope. And hope is the most important virtue that a human being should never lose. When people become atheistic, serial killers, cynical, materialistic, when they start destroying their body by alcohol, smoking, drugs, whatever, they do it because they don't believe in anything good which will still come to them. It's like my life is forfeit, I have fucked up everything, I can as well kill myself. There's no hope. A person that has hope would never drink or smoke because it's ruining their hope. It goes against their hope. Only when a person has given up hope, 
A person says, yeah, but I can as well put a knife in my kidneys, you know. What does it matter anymore? Nothing. I'm lost anyway. The whole thing is damn useless and so on. This is the psychology of hopelessness. And hopelessness in later Catholic and Orthodox uh, communion or confession advisors is the top number one sin. It is higher than murder. There are seven capital sins, which some of you may know, the list varies a little bit, such as sloth, greed, anger, whatever. They are gluttony, fornication, and I don't know what. The seven capital sins. Above the seven capital sins, there are the sins which cry to heaven. One of them being murder. There are sins above murder in Christianity. Like you killed somebody, look at Milarepa, he killed 35 people and then he got away with it. So murder is not the worst thing that a human being can do. And then there come the famous ones, the sins against the Holy Spirit. And that's where we go really heavy, really heavy duty. And the worst of them, the one which sits on top of all of them, is hopelessness. Like you should rather kill somebody than lose your hope. Never lose your hope. Because when you lose your hope, your soul is in the hands of the devil already. You simply cannot afford. It's not allowed. That's why Jesus... All the time tells to people, have hope. And then even his disciples, the kingdom of God is nigh. The kingdom of God is near you, it's coming. Like have hope. In the end of this life, you might find yourself in the kingdom of heaven if you act correctly. Act correctly, therefore. Play, play, play the game. Don't simply say, uh, I will never become a Buddha. For me, it's all lost. How do you know? How do you know it's all lost? This is just a demon talking into your brain and telling you, let your guard down. Everything is lost. You can't hope for anything. Never. Never, ever. You never give up. You always keep up hope. Hope is the one virtue that has to be kept there. Even if I have killed 35 people, there is hope. Because if it worked for Milarepa, why can't it work for me? No. Remember that there were people who crucified Jesus and then they became Christian saints. Ten years later, they couldn't bear it. They couldn't bear it because they realized what they have done a little bit. And then they converted to Christianity and they were assassinated and they became martyrs. And in this way, they became saints. So a, soul, a Roman soldier who killed Jesus or who tortured Jesus later becomes a saint. Then what is impossible in this world? Nothing is impossible. Nothing. Therefore, the hope should always be there. When you lost the hope, it's worse than if you are going to kill somebody because the person who has no hope can kill a hundred. Because he says, what difference will it make? Everything was lost Already. 
I'm whatever, shit, it doesn't matter. This kind of thing that it doesn't matter, it's not at all true, and it's not at all good. Hope is traditionally related to Anahata Chakra. That's why nowadays in the West, when Anahata Chakra is so closed because of the capitalistic culture, and very few people have Anahata Chakra a bit developed, and when they have it a bit developed, they pollute it, and the way to deal with your Anahata Chakra is just to get drunk and do stupid things when you are drunk, you know, because that's the only time when you can feel free and open and this and that, you know, and then people ruin even that. So today, that's why so much of the modern culture, civilization, it has no faith, no religion, no hope. Most people are cynical. Most people are <coughs> full of skepticism and full of sarcasm and full of, you know, you would laugh. No? Even in front of Jesus, there are people who could make a movie making fun of Jesus, like the life of Brian. They didn't really make fun of Jesus, but they made fun of the whole circumstances, the whole story, in which way, and in the end of that movie, Jesus is on a cross together with a bunch of people, and they are singing a nice song. What was it? Focus on the bright side of life. Focus on the bright side of life. You know, Jesus was not singing at all on the cross. There was nothing to be sung. But he had the hope. In the moment when you sing about Jesus on the cross, yeah, he probably sang a, a lullaby with the guys there, or a, whatever. Jig, you know. Those are cynical, skeptical people that have no hope. So it's a sign of our civilization, you know. We want to go to Mars and we want to build intelligent robots, but we have no hope. Our heart is dead. That's the problem. Now we believe in technological advancement, and even if that technological advancement will come tomorrow, that technological advancement is coming to suicidal, hopeless, depressed people. That's why they say depression is the disease of the 21st century. Why? Because a person who is full of hope will never get depressed. Depression is showing clearly that in the heart of that person there is no vision. There is no looking forward. There is no hope. If there is hope, how can you be depressed? You can say, but my life is shit. And my life is shit because the Lord is pressing me hard so I can evolve spiritually and from this pain there will result a crown of laurels on my head and I shall reach the kingdom of heaven. The person that has hope turns the pains of life into spiritual tests and trials because essentially he or she still has hope. So it doesn't matter if life is shitty. Life is shitty and it means God is subjecting me to a very hard trial. It's all in the psychology of hope. Even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when he discovered, when she discovered the five stages of death and dying, such as denial and all those, she says on top of these five stages, parallel with them all the time, 
sometimes coming, sometimes going, but always there, there's the sixth emotion, which is not a stage because it goes from the beginning till the end. And that emotion, for those of you who studied the art of dying, you know it because it's in your brochures, that emotion is hope. People who die, at least at some points, they hope. They hope. And, uh, you know, it's condemned. Our religion is just selling hopes to people. You don't realize what you're talking about. Hope is the thing. And that's why Jesus says, heal the sick who are there. And when they are at the most receptive and vulnerable, tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Because look, Jesus is here. That is giving hope to the whole Israel. Israel was complaining for a thousand years, when will the Messiah come? When will the Messiah come? When we never get the Messiah. Hopelessness. They are hopeless. And imagine that after Jesus came, let's say 30% of the Jewish people recognized him and they turned Christian, so to speak. Because in those days it was very unclear exactly how it would be. And the other 70%, they turned their back and they said, no, nah, no, nah, this can't be the guy. The Romans killed him way too easy. We expected a sort of gladiator, a sort of Hercules, a sort of Spartacus who will fuck the Romans, you know, and so on. That is our Messiah. No, some Manipuristic warrior and so on. Imagine the depression. The Messiah still had not come. <coughs> and since 2,000 years, the Jews are still awaiting for the Messiah. It's not a surprise that the Jewish culture is one of the most materialistic, cynical, skeptical, and bitter in so many ways. <coughs> because there is a lot of hopelessness. There is a lot of hopelessness. So, tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Yeah? This is the development of hope. And at the same time, of course, is an expectation. It's exactly like NLP. Say, now it's going to happen. Now it's going to happen. In our lifetime, it's going to happen. Then, like the Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. No, then when you say that, you, by resonance, you will make yourself live in very interesting times. Because you have the expectations. Your subconscious mind is projecting it. But when you enter a town and you are not welcome, go into its streets and say... You see, normally in the previous time, when he sent the twelve, he said, if they uh, bugger you in the one town, just uh, shake the dust off your feet and go away. Let them be. They are a demonic town, and because of this, somehow they are afraid of you, and they reject you, and whatever. When he says a town, he means a village. Remember, Israel, Palestine was relatively a small place. So we are talking about perhaps hundreds of villages, not really big cities or anything like this. But here, he becomes more specific. He is not at the level of the twelve, 
He is more at the level close to it. It's at the level of interaction. He's at the level of the 72. And he's at the level of the people there. And he says, go into the street. Like people say, you are not welcome. And then you are on the street. And you say, he doesn't say, say it loud or say it in your soul. No, it's more for you. It's more for your consciousness. But at the same time, it's a consecration. Because remember, you have a consciousness. And when you speak, you speak to whom? To yourself and to God. And therefore, this is like a magic. And it's not nice at all. He says, even the dust on your town that sticks to your feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. So he goes on reverse neuro-linguistic programming by threatening people. Like if they don't get you in their houses and they don't see you healing somebody, then at least you can go by scare, by fear. Because you remember that it was considered positive to be afraid of God. One of the epithets of nice people in English language, when you talk about nice people, you say Walter is a God-fearing person. And God-fearing means he will not rape, he will not kill, he will not steal, because he is a God-fearing person. To be a God-fearing person means to be moral and to behave. So Jesus turns it the other way around. He says, if they don't go in the nice way, you can as well throw the cat among the pigeons. You know, like you can give it to them the hard way then. And you simply say, we don't want even the dust from your village, you know, because your village is accursed or something. We wipe off it against you. We wipe it off against you like, like a witness. We are witnessing to heaven. Look. Let it be clear, we wipe the dust, this village is not on our good list. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. The same hope, like if they don't convert out of healing, maybe they convert out of hope. Because somebody will watch and we say, we saw those crazy guys, they came in the name of Jesus, the mayor didn't want to receive them, And then they went all fiery and righteous and they said, okay, here is to heaven a witness against you. Even the dust, we keep it against you. But still we tell you that the kingdom of heaven is near. Like that doesn't change because we don't go into your village. And then people say, you know what, maybe we should not listen to the mayor. Maybe we should follow those guys and see because uh, I'm worried that those guys know something which we don't know. So it's using reverse motivation, but still Jesus is saying if they don't want to listen the nice way, listen the frightening way. The same way is mentioned in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for those of you who studied the art of dying here in Agama. In the first seven day of Chonid Bardo, you see the peaceful day it is. And most often you get afraid of them and you don't manage to go there. And then the universe gives you one more chance. For another seven days, you see the wrathful deities, which are much more frightening. But some people are a bit like this. Some people say, I didn't react when you talked to me nicely, but when you slapped me on the face, I reacted. Then I listened. 
So there are some people who like the hard way. There are some people who want to go the rough way. And for those, Jesus gives them the dark side. You know, gives them the backhand of it. If you don't like the nice way, here is the other one. And he says, I tell you, now he gives them faith, because they don't know, but Jesus says, now you've seen me walking on water and all that. Listen, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. It's like, this is Jesus who says he's God. And he says he will, there will come a day when people who did not do this or that, not, that's 2,000 years ago. What's happening today? He says it will be more bearable for Sodom. I hope you know a bit of Bible history. Sodom was just burned alive, full on. Today, the people who analyze the Bible from a scientific standpoint, they say that what happened in Sodom, the description from the Old Testament, there is only one thing which comes close to it, and even that one is not complete. Nuclear explosion. That Sodom was annihilated by a thermonuclear something. Of course, God does not have nuclear missiles, but some energy reaction which was insane. And Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Oops. And then he, Jesus goes in overdrive. Now, like now he becomes the crazy mystic that everybody is afraid of. You know, like when Jesus, sometimes when he gets unleashed, he goes on full on. And here is an example, which he did in Jerusalem, at the temple, and other places. He wants to explain, and because, now what is he talking about? There have been some cities which did that to him, to them, as a group, already. That's why he knows that there will be some nice ones, and there will be some, uh-uh. uh no? And he starts mentioning the previous ones which already happened. He doesn't do prophecies of the future. He just speaks about, we encountered this, and those are on the list. They are on the blacklist already. And funny, he as God, he keeps them in his mind. He knows them. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, or whatever you pronounce it like. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are cities, villages where they have been, and people told them, fuck off, we are not interested in your shit in our village. And he starts mumbling at them. Woe to you this, and woe to you that. For if the miracles that were performed in you, in those villages, had been performed in Tyre and in Sidon, these are cities related to the Babylonian captivity of the Jews and so on, so old Jewish cities mixed as well, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So he said, for God's sake, I walked on water. I raised three people from the dead. I gave sight to probably 50 blind people, and I healed a hundred lepers. Like, what on earth do you want more? 
And I heal them like this. You know, I heal them by saying, stand up, take your bed and go home, you know. I heal them not by a six-month-long process where I gave them Shankaprakshalana every day and stuff like this. I heal them by, like, by a miracle. And he says, and he is right. He says, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Jesus says, if I would have gone in that century and have done what I have done in this Bethsaida and Chorazin, those people would have repented. They would have said, oh my God, we are sorry. Please tell us what to do. They would have gone for it. But what's the difference? The difference is that those cities and those stories were hundreds of years ago. And the people were more spiritual, more pure, the religion was more young. Already at the time when Jesus came, the Jews, and not only the Jews, the Romans, and all the Gentiles around, they were egoistic bastards. And that's why a smaller number, like Jesus did, something incredible, you know, like something really big, and a handful of people. No, in the end they were not a handful. But in the beginning a handful of people converted. A handful of people believed. No, and Jesus said, if I would have done this in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes. That's an old story from the Bible. That a prophet came to a king, I forgot who, you can find, if you know the Old Testament history, a prophet came to a Jewish king and he said, now there is a real bad karma hanging. Of course, he used other words. Yeah? He said, now it's coming. Big trouble is coming. I Listen, God is telling you through me. I can see it coming. And the emperor was not an arrogant idiot. He said, what can we do to avert it? And he was told, everybody should dress in very, the worst clothes you can possibly get, which in those days was sack, the sack cloth. Even today, take a hemp sack, a sack made of natural fiber, not some of these PVC sacks, plastic sacks, but natural sacks like were used 50, 100 years ago, the ones made of hemp, and try to cut a neck and two arms in it, and to use it as a sweater, as a vest. It scratches your skin terribly. It's a very coarse cloth, and being dressed in sack was the mark of the poorest of the poorest. Only the poor people could not afford cloth, cotton, what to mention about silk and things like this, and they were dressed in sack. So this prophet told to this king, you all go dressed, even the rich people in the city, everybody, and you, the king, you go dressed in sack for 50 days, six weeks, whatever, and you pray to God for forgiveness. And you, they had a ritual where in sign of penance, they took ashes from the fire and they poured it over their head. Which was, it's a very interesting ritual, but it's not mentioned here explicitly and we're not going there. No, like why on the head? How is it related to Sahasrara and all that? So, he says, 
you know, and if we, I would have done that, this entire in Sidon, they would have become the people of God. They had that much conscience. And now in these villages of Israel, in two villages it's working, in one village it's not working. Like, what kind of people are these? How impure is their Manipura? How stubborn and egocentric are they? You know, in Bethsaida, he made this miracle with a blind man who, if you remember, there was a water spring and uh, he put the blind man in it and he recovered his sight. And like, he gave sight to the blind in Bethsaida and they didn't accept him. And here he says, woe to you, Bethsaida. And he, so he uses, you can see that Jesus is using the common sense of the common sense, you know. It's like not sophisticated things. He simply looks like a common sense person and he says, if all these things would have been done in Tyre and Sidon or whatever you pronounce it, they would have been converted. They would have repented and given up their bad ways. So like, what are these people? No, this is common sense. This is how God is thinking. People think that God must be a genius who thinks in a twisted way. No. He thinks like Jesus. Like if such things, so much energy and effort and karmic effort has been put in these villages, in Bethsaida and in Korazin, and their heart is still made of stone. Their heart did not shudder. Their heart did not wake up. Like Then uh, probably nuclear bombs will wake them up. You know, something a bit more confident has to be tried besides this. So that's why take this, be contaminated by this, because Jesus is thinking in the common sense way. God is common sense. One of the greatest teachers who was the inspiration of yoga teachers, who was the inspiration of one of my first Hatha yoga teacher in Romania, was Andrei van Lisbeth, the Belgian Hatha yoga teacher and author. And when they asked, who is your guru, because he knew a hundred yogis in India, he repeated, and some of you know it from some of my lectures, he simply repeated and he said, my guru is called Swami Common Sense Ananda. No? Like, forget about all the big swamis and so on, because they could be idiots. But there is a common sense, you know, there's like common sense should never leave. Jesus is full of common sense in these things. He says, you know, it's not rocket science here, you know, it's like the great truths are simple. They are right in front of your eyes. I was surprised by this. There was a breath of air when I saw the scenes from The Merchant of Venice from William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare has so many plays, and one in one of them, I don't know if you know the story and the details are not important, but uh, there is an argument in the courts of law in Venice between a merchant who is a twisted guy and some guy who has been done injustice, but he stupidly signed some papers, and it's all like the merchant twists it all the time. And he says, yeah, but he signed the papers. But this is my right. I invested. I also lost. I this, I that. The one with the pound of flesh, because he is asking for a pound of flesh eventually. And he wants that pound of flesh to be the heart of the guy. So he wants to kill him. And he says, that's my pound of flesh. 
And then in the defense of that guy and his friend, there come two girls disguised in boys, because girls were not, be, were not allowed to be lawyers in a court of law in that century. So they dress themselves as pages, as boys, and then they come and they say, we are the ones who want to argue for the case of this man. And you would think that they would do like in the American movies, where they twist the articles of law, and they find a precedent, and they find some twisted uh, flaw, and some... No. They simply come with common sense. When you read the final part in court there, they say, but it is like this, and like this, and a person like this cannot be allowed to dictate things in a city like ours, in a city made of decent people. Like they go strictly on common sense. And I was, when I was seeing this movie, I, there are probably several editions. I saw the Al Pacino edition of this movie. And I was, you know, it's like men today in no American or European court of law Anybody could come in a such pure and clean way and speak out like with the voice of Jesus, with the voice of reason, with the voice of Socrates, with the voice of evidence, with the voice of common sense for God's sake. Nobody. Today, if you do that in a court of law, it'll be like objection, your honor. It is irrelevant. It is, it's not irrelevant at all. This is the most relevant thing. This is the way God thinks. Because Jesus shows us the way God thinks. And therefore, it's beautiful to regain some of this simplicity. You know, and to realize that the water is wet, the sky is blue, things are the way they are. You know, there is not, it's like in Zen, they say the mountains re-become mountains and the valleys re-become valleys. You don't need to turn the reality upside down. Things are what they are. Like the great Zen master who said, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I go to sleep. You know, it's like, that's my wisdom. They say, what's your wisdom consisting? And he said, when I'm tired, I go to sleep. When I'm hungry, I eat. No, but it doesn't mean he's an animal. He is way more than a normal human being, and he let go of all these twisted, ridiculous things that we have in our minds and which torture us. All these crazy ideas and twisty ways of thinking. Simple, simple, face to face, like you look in the eyes of Jesus, and simple things are simple and evident. No? So, and therefore, he says, but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, Sidon, whatever, at the judgment than for you. Jesus says clearly there will be a judgment, which means there is an end of Kali Yuga, which could be tomorrow or could be 10 years from now, or it could be 300 years from now. But it, in my opinion, it's not, definitely not further than 1,000 years from now. Definitely not. Rather closer than so far away. And uh, Jesus says there is a judgment, which means in the evolution of every community, national soul, egregor, collective soul, as well as every individual soul and their evolution, there is a day of accounts. 
like exactly like when you finish a year in your university and the secretarial system in your university says you have accumulated 55 points and you still need 300 till graduation. That's, you know, like, you know there is a accounting day, periodically. Periodically, perhaps would mean every 26,000 years, you know, like the size of a yuga. But there is, he calls it judgment. This judgment is a sort of evaluation. It's like a test, an exam. And that exam doesn't mean that you have to do something then. It means that it evaluates what you have done already. Because then it's too late. It's the time of evaluation. And, and Jesus says, if some cities are against me, which sounds like mighty megalomanic, then he says, if they don't listen to you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. To those cities you are telling them, to you it will be more bearable. And he has one more city that he has grudge for, which he didn't mention. He said, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, there is one more. And he comes, you know, Jesus doesn't forget, God doesn't forget. And he says, and you, Capernaum. Capernaum was apparently the village where he fished Peter from. Peter was a fisherman in Capernaum and his brother. No? And he says, and you, Capernaum. Jesus is talking to the souls of the cities, of the villages. Jesus acknowledges that there is a history and the destiny of the collectivities, not only of each and every individual, which is also true, but it's simultaneous and synchronized. It's like this terrible joke where an airplane is about to crash and somebody in the airplane says, God save us, save at least some of us. It cannot be all of us that have this terrible fate to die in an airplane crash. And the voice is being heard who says, you don't know how many years I have worked to put you all in the same airplane. No? Like, uh, yes, actually everybody in that airplane deserves to die. Maybe sometimes it's not exact because we have planets and other things which work mechanically. There was a story some 10 years ago, maybe 15, when an airplane going somewhere from Saudi Arabia, one of the Emirates, I think it was going to Mauritius or Reunion in the Indian Ocean, and the plane fell out of the sky. In the middle of, you know, somewhere between India and the Seychelles, and you know, in the middle of a fucking ocean full of sharks. Guess what? One little girl that was nine years old was found alive, swimming in the water. Everybody else to the one, they have all disappeared and died. How did that one little girl escape? She was probably not belonging to that airplane. And, uh, you know, if it's happening, then the divine consciousness can take it back, can make a hocus-pocus. And nobody asked themselves, how do you have 300 people dying and one little girl of nine-year-old found swimming in the water after 12 hours? Like, are you kidding me? Yes, it did happen actually. So, 
Back to our story, as you can see, Jesus admits collective karma, the karma of nations, and so on, like nations which are growing up, like the Greeks. Even the first Bible was written in Greek. And what are the Greeks today? Nothing. It's a dead nation which doesn't produce anything except frustration. I have been to Greece. Most of them are chain smokers. Most of them are cynical, sarcastic, tired. It's an old nation. It's the so, and now they are getting overrun by Africans and Syrians and God knows who, you know, and they don't know what to do with it. And all the other European countries say, <clears throat> sorry, we can't help you and so on. And it's like, it's not, it's a nonsense. It's a nightmare. And thus, you can see Greece shine, shone at the time of Socrates. That's when Greece was ruling the world. When the 300 Spartans beat a million Persians. That's when the Greek spirit was strong. Today, they are just followed by the French intellectuals, you know. Cynical, sarcastic, flat, smoke, be like shit, don't believe into anything, go down. So, even the countries have a rise and a fall. Today, everybody knows that the countries that have the most power in this, even Britain. Britain is slowly going down. It was a huge empire. It's not. It's becoming an island which the European Union is fucking in the ass. You know, Theresa May cannot get a decent deal. That's why there is a scandal, because a hundred years ago, if the Prime Minister of India, England would have come and said, we need to negotiate some terms, they would negotiate with a the bayonet. They had the bayonet in front of them, and the people had to negotiate with England at gunpoint. If you pissed off England, the warships of England would be on your shores in no time. And people, England was always getting good terms. But today, Theresa May, she's just a sissy little girl, trying to negotiate with the people from the European Union who don't care about England so much anymore, and they have no terms. And the terms, the treaties, sucks. I don't know, but they never show it in the television because there is a whole story, there are forces, but if you would find it, take it. The European Union told them, if you leave the European Union, for the next 14 years, you still have to give us 4 billion pounds every year so that we keep the accounts of the European Union undisturbed by... Like, are you kidding me? You want me to give you 80 billion dollars over 20... 80 billion pounds, not dollars, over 20 years just because you cannot regulate your fucking accounts because I'm leaving? And of course the British prefer to go with no deal. Hard Brexit, you know, because it's much more advantageous financially than the deal which was imposed on Theresa May. Because she doesn't have Manipura, she is not a good negotiator, and she didn't have the British gun with her to put it at the head of the other negotiators to make them give good terms. And therefore, it is the nations have their ups and downs. But Russia, Russia has as many nuclear heads as all the other countries put together, and a bit more. 
If you sum up China with United States, with England, with France and the other nuclear powers, all of them together don't have as many nuclear heads as Russia has. And now they are making new rockets, bigger, smarter, you know. So is it obvious that nobody can fuck with Russia? They say, oh, Putin, oh, but do they have the courage? Putin just entered in Crimea. Oh my God, when Saddam Hussein entered in Kuwait, they fucked him to the bone. You know, but why don't they fuck Putin to the bone? Because nobody can. That's why. Because Putin has got his gun and bayonet on it, and he has the hand on the button, on the big red button, and nobody plays with that. And that's why, which are the countries that have power now? United States, Russia, and China. These are countries which now are mature. They are like adults. There are countries which are children, and there are countries which are on their deathbed, like Greece. And therefore, Jesus knows, this is well known in the world of metaphysics, and Jesus is speaking to cities and communities. Forget about the individuals. The individuals also have their individual stories. But you looked at this. There were three Malaysian airplanes that fell out of the sky in one year. Two years ago or three years ago. Three Malaysian airplanes. The one which disappeared without a trace. The one that was shot over Ukraine accidentally or what. And an Air Asia which was coming from Indonesia to Malaysia and it belonged to the Malaysian branch of Air Asia. Three airplanes in one year. It shows that there is something in the soul of Malaysia. People who understand this, they understand that there is a there is a collective energy which produces these things. So Jesus is not is not a, a dreamer. He is talking to collectivities, and these are parts of the Jewish collectivity of that time. And he says, and you, Capernaum, the village of Peter, no, the village of one of his, or two of his disciples, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? Like, no, that's the dream. We, the whole country, move to the kingdom of heaven, you know. It's like a transmutation, it's like a magic of us going to heaven, all of us becoming a blessed country, or something and he rhetorically asks you, but what about Capernaum? I forgot about you. Will you go to heaven? And he says, no. You will go down to the depths. I don't know why, but even today I'm telling you, if I would live in the village of Capernaum, which is today in Israel, I would emigrate to New Zealand. Because maybe this point of no return is happening tomorrow. And if it catches me in Capernaum, I'm in an airplane that is crashing. Because Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is quoted saying, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. I don't hope it will happen during our lifetimes, so that you can have a crushing proof that Jesus was right. There is a part in me which says, I would like to see that happening, you know, it's like, then my faith in Jesus would be increased. I don't need that. I hope I can have faith in Jesus and in God in other ways, 
not by waiting to see if the village which sits on the place of Capernaum today will go to hell or not. Or what does it mean it will go into the depth? That's why, as you can see here, Jesus is not in a joking mood. Jesus simply said this story that everybody is going to be treated nicely is just a sort of a bullshit, because it's not. He mentions Tyre and Sidon, and I don't know what happened in Tyre and Sidon. Maybe you know more Bible history than I. If not, Google it, and you'll find out. He mentions Sodom, which is that one I know. I remember about that one, you know. And uh, he, then he accuses others. And of course you can say, what about uh, Libya? Well, Jesus doesn't mention it, right? It's maybe not even in the, in the geographical knowledge of the people of that time that on the north coast of Africa there was an area which was to be called Libya or something. So you cannot expect that Jesus addressed everything like a sort of Wikipedia. He became an encyclopedia who said, uh, Jesus, Jesus, what about Switzerland? You know, it's like, he didn't talk about that, but it's just a few examples from where we can see that there is a collective karma, that there is a karma of countries, that there is a karma of egregores and national souls, there is a karma of different things. Now, today, these white supremacists, or whatever they are, because some people say they are not white supremacists, who bomb mosques and do like this last shooting from United States and from New Zealand, all these uh, extremists and so on, no, they complain, all of them, that the white people are overrun by the black people and the others, you know. And, but even Baba Vanga, even Vanga Dimitrovna foresaw it in 1980-something. She saw that these things are happening in Europe around 2020. It's written by her, it's comedy. They are all on the internet. Take, just go Baba Vanga predictions and see for yourself. These are, she died in 1996 or something, or 2000. Now she didn't get to see most of the things. And why I'm telling you this, because, of course, that there is a destiny of a karma of each person, and then this karma accumulates in some places. For example, Edgar Cayce said that the karma in the cities is worse than the karma in the countryside. Because in the cities, it's a lot of people putting all their apana together, a lot of negative energy, you cannot purify it well. It's exactly like the water in the sewer system. You cannot, there is a lot of impurity, and there is no astral sewer. And because of this, the garbage, in the, the psychic garbage in a city is much bigger than in the countryside. And he said, Edgar Casey. He said that the karma of the cities is worse than the karma of the villages. So if you live in a village, or like here, you live in the middle of the jungle, you have another karma than the karma of the cities. It's just an example, just to show to you that there are many aspects of it. And uh, he predicts about some of them, but this list is much longer, only we don't have that list. It is supposed that Shambhala has the list. The clairvoyants from Shambhala, they know exactly 
what is going to go down and what is going to stay and how and all that. And therefore, uh, here Jesus simply say there will be a time of reckoning, not because God wants to take any revenge, but simply because you accumulate negative karma, you reject spirituality, because of this you become cynical, materialistic, dark, selfish, sarcastic, evil, and then it's your own doing, you are doing it to yourself. No, it's not that God wants to take revenge on you. It's your own karma which produces those effects. It's the disaster, you shoot yourself in the foot, basically, and that's the end of it. And Jesus continues, and I will interrupt somewhere here, I'll continue from next time. He says, he who listens to you, listens to me. That's exactly like the empowerment. I'm teaching you a yoga, which I have learned from my gurus, and which in the tradition, my gurus told me that it comes from Shiva, that Shiva is the first teacher of yoga. So when I'm teaching you, I'm trying to teach you what my teachers taught me, and what is verified with the Shastras, with the Holy Scriptures of yoga, and therefore which goes back all the way to Shiva. I don't want to betray that teaching in any way, because yoga is not mine. I'm a steward of yoga. It has been put in my hands like this, and it has been said, give it, pass it on, give it further to the next generation, unspoiled, as you received it, as you received it, so give it further. If you can improve it, improve on it, but at least don't destroy it, don't harm it, don't chop it, don't mutilate it, let it be as it is. And thus, there is a sense of responsibility. And in a certain way, I can say, although I am unworthy of this, that he who listens to me, listens to my gurus, and listens to Shiva. It's the same principle. Jesus basically gives them an empowerment. In Agama, all the teachers who teach yoga, they are empowered. They make a special meditation with me once a year, in which I empower them exactly like this. Not with the same words, but the spirit of it is the same. Like the teachers in Agama, they teach in my name. They are my fingers, my extensions, because I cannot be in all the yoga halls and do all the things, and therefore I have to teach by proxy. And the teachers of yoga in this school, they are my proxies. And if they say, but I don't want to be uh, related in any way with Swami Vivekananda because he is a filthy old man, then you don't teach in Agama. As you know, we recently had a scandal in Agama, and we had a number of teachers who simply left. And now they are on the fence. They don't know if they should come back or go. And you can ask many of the Agama students, say, but Swamiji, why don't you talk to them? I am not going to beg them, please come back and serve as my extensions. No, Jesus is not begging these people. They followed Jesus, and Jesus chose them. Therefore, whoever follows in this school, they can take upon themselves to do this. And if they don't want, they don't want. It's as simple as that. 
And therefore, he says an important thing. He says, he who listens to you, listens to me. And of course, it's valid the other way around, which is a bit more bitter. He says, he who rejects you, rejects me. Well, it's a bit more bitter if Jesus is coming and saying, remember, 2,000 years ago you rejected me. Because you rejected Peter. No, like you can very well say, well, fuck if I knew. But it's too late, and therefore the only thing which you can say is, I hope next time I will be more careful and not do the same mistake. This is how we learn from our mistakes. Sometimes we make mistakes, and when we do those mistakes, we hope we don't repeat them. Remember the famous medieval proverb, I think it was Dante who said it, or one of these Italian philosophers. I don't think it was Machiavelli, I think it was Dante, nevertheless, who said, Errare humanum est, perseverare diabolicum. To err, to make errors, is human. Every human can make errors. I can make errors. I have made many, many mistakes in my life. Perseverare diabolicum. If you do the the same mistake again and again, that comes from the devil. That's not a human error anymore. Persevering in an error, it means you worship the devil. You follow the path of the devil. Because you, 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 you get it wrong once, you get it wrong twice. How long are you going to get it wrong? If you keep on getting it wrong, you cannot say, oh, I didn't know. Yes, you did know, and you are possessed by the devil. That's why you keep pretending that you don't get the message, and you keep doing the same fucking error all the time. You actually like doing that error. You are attracted to doing that error. It tickles, and you pretend you, oh, sorry, again. No, 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 no. There is no sorry again after the tenth time. After the tenth time, it means there is a part of your subconscious mind which actually wants to do it, and you are lying perhaps to yourself and, of course, to the rest of the world. But you cannot lie to God. You cannot lie to the clear consciousness. And that's why he says, he who listens to you listens to me, He who rejects you, rejects me. But he who rejects me, now he continues. He says, that's the real bitter problem. Because he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Because he says, exactly as you represent me, I represent something or someone much bigger. And therefore, if you reject, if they reject you, they reject me. But the problem is that when they reject me, they reject he that sent me. And that's not going to go well. That's not going to have good consequences. You can be sure if among you has, is there any one of you who feels I'm an old soul? I have gone through many incarnations. I have done many things. And now I'm ready to give myself to God. I'm ready to consecrate myself to God. No, there are people among you, obviously. Why? I don't think I'm the only madman in this part of the island, you know. So I suppose some of you are a bit crazy and you would like to push it, to go in that way. You know, definitely I met people 
some of them are great teachers, great yogis today, like Sahajananda and others who have exactly this mentality, you know, like I want to give myself completely. And that can very well be a very old soul. Anybody in this room who is an old soul, I can promise you that in your 5,000 previous lives, you have killed a lot of people. You have raped. You have plundered. And unfortunately, I can promise you that in your lives, you have crucified Jesus, you have killed saints, you have practiced Satanism, you have denied God, because that's the only way in which the soul is learning. Sometimes the soul simply needs to fuck it up really bad and go to hell and suffer and then after 25,000 years, when you come out of hell, then you are a new person. Like, maybe people who go to the prisons of Europe or America, they come out equally criminal or more criminal when they come out of prison than the, when they went in. But I can promise you that hell, for example, has a very, very successful rate of reformation of the souls. Like, when you go there, you come out white as driven snow, and really ready to be Mother Teresa in the next life, you know, like you are ready to do whatever because hell does not contain the human approximations and errors. It's a real correctional system. Correctional means correctional. It corrects those who get in there. And thus, uh, it happens. It happens, you know, like Jesus is not talking nonsense. Oh, why is Jesus so tough? Because some people are on this side of the mountain and some people are on this side of the mountain. And it's 50-50. 50% of the people need to go to hell because they have never been and they don't know what's the difference between good and evil. And after you've been spanking Jesus and gone to hell, then believe me, you will know what the difference of good and evil is much, much better than before that episode. And that's why sometimes these things are a necessary tool for learning in the evolution of the souls. And that's why Jesus is not cruel or negative. Jesus is just detached. He is God. There is a special fresco, which I've seen mostly in Byzantine icons. There is a Byzantine icon which shows Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. And on one hand, to the right hand of Jesus... They are saints with halos around their heads. And, and on, the right, on the left side of Jesus, there is a river of fire. And there it's like a painting of Hieronymus Bosch. You know, it's hell in its fullness. On the same fresco, Jesus is the Lord, both of the ones who go to paradise and the ones who go to hell. The problem is that the ones who will go to hell... It's not very modern to say today this in the educational system, but in the old days it was working. Uh, they simply deserved the spanking. They needed a good spanking in their life cycles. And now they are getting the spanking, and they are going to get reform out of it. Today we don't believe that spanking reforms children, but in the old-fashioned systems of education, there were such beliefs. And uh, let's stop here. He who listens to you listens to me. But again, that's the all empowerment. 
If you listen to a pupil of the Dalai Lama, you listen to the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama can send people to speak for him and in the name of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And so on. And there are people who come in the name of Rumi. I have met with a guy who knew that he was the 76th descendant from Rumi himself. Like the family lineage of Rumi in Konya in Turkey is known. People know that there are the 76 great, 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 76 times great son of Rumi. They know, you know, because it's like, because they have these empowerments in Islam, you know, and it's like you listen to this person, he claims to speak in the name of Rumi and in the name of the Sufi tradition, which lineage, which he represents. He who listens to you, listens to me, because... What do you mean? It can't be. Jesus is much more special. But the truth, the truth, the word, isn't it the same? If Jesus said, forgive your enemies, and you go further and you say, I can tell you from Lord Jesus at least this much, forgive your enemies. You are listening to Jesus from the standpoint of the word, of the logos, it's the same as Jesus, even if it's uttered by a different mouth. But the word is the same. The value of the word is the same. And thus he is right. He says, he who listens to you, listens to me. Of course, in case you didn't change it. But for example, while the Catholic Church never changed things, the Protestant churches, starting with Luther himself, and finishing with Zwingli and Calvin, and you name them, they changed a lot of things. Not to mention about the Jehovah's Witnesses or about John Mormon, who changed a lot, like rudely, not just changed a little bit, you know. Martin Luther didn't have the cheek to change too much. He changed this. But then others have increased in boldness and they have changed almost everything. No? So... Of course, it has to be authentic lineage, authentic transmission. Like the, there is today, if you go today in the Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, any priest or monk or nun who is good, like who is good quality, doesn't dare to say one word outside of what Jesus and the Apostles said. So that when you listen to them, you listen to Jesus. Otherwise, you're listening to me, but you're not listening to Jesus, because I'm speaking shit, which is not uh, traditional, you know, it doesn't come from a lineage. Therefore, he, here he mentions in between the lines, I don't have time to go more, I'll, next time I'll, get, I'll start from this paragraph, he who listens to you listens to me, he who rejects you rejects me, which is the bitter part. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me, and that's much more serious business. So, here, Jesus makes things very black and white. It's very black and white from this standpoint. You are with, or you are against. If you reject Peter, you reject Jesus, and if you reject Jesus, you reject the God that sent Jesus. That's why in the moment when Jesus was rejected by a large number of people, 
temporary because later, 100, 200, 300 years later, a lot of people loved Jesus and accepted him. But right then, in the moment, he was rejected a lot. Jesus says, I forgive you. It's okay that you reject me. I have nothing against you. And the problem is that meanwhile you've rejected the one who sent me. And for that one, I cannot forgive you. I, like, I don't have the authority to decide what that one will decide. So therefore, that's another problem which you'll have to solve at another level. Now with me, it's okay. You, you thought I'm an idiot, it's okay. I forgive you because you thought I'm a dirty old man or something. And I was like, I can forgive everybody who thinks that. Problem is that with this, you are throwing the baby with the water in the tub. You know, because together with this, there comes something else which is much, much bigger and much, much more important. So, let's stop here for tonight. As you can see, Jesus is very strong and we still didn't finish the advice to the 72. Jesus gives some laws of life and also some ways of interacting with spiritual teaching and with these things. Like the person who has an authentic empowerment should believe in it, should go for it. There are obstacles. The obstacles which the Jesus pupils had 2,000 years ago, today they are much bigger. It's okay. We just keep on doing the things. Some of us manage to have gurus, to be taught some things. We are trying to pass them on to the next generation. And, uh, you know... We hope that yoga will survive till the end of the Kali Yuga, whenever that happens, in one month or in uh, 300 years. We just hope that yoga, tantra will survive because they are very, very good teachings. But if you think a little bit back, you will see that there are a lot of things which did not survive. So many things did not survive. What we know from Atlantis or, you know, Either Edgar Casey or simply what Plato and what, uh, Hi- not Hippocrates, Herodotus, what the great Greek and Roman historians tell us about Atlantis. That there was a land called Atlantis and they harnessed the power of the sun and they were using anti-gravitation. And we find it in the Mahabharata and Ramayana that the o- old Hindu heroes, they were using Vimanas flying saucers, flying platforms, which were driven by quicksilver. We, like, if even today scientists say that if you'd ever build an ionic engine, an engine with ions, it will have to be with quicksilver, because only quicksilver has the ionic power to create such an engine. But nobody has built an ionic engine or an anti-gravitation platform. Or, and it's written in the Mahabharata, and in other, Samarangan Sutradhara, and other texts from India, they even describe how to build such machines to a certain detail. It's not everything to the millimeter, to the last nut and bolt is there. So actually nobody can understand how they are made. But they are described. What schizophrenic daydreamer 6,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago described an anti-gravitational flying platform propelled by quicksilver. 
What's the chance that somebody was so crazy that they wrote incredibly accurate science fiction 5,000 years ago? No, it's like it's almost impossible. So are those secrets lost? For now, apparently so. The Vedic priests, the Vedic Brahmins, they had a liquor called Soma. And today there is 150 falsification of what Soma is supposed to be. But actually Soma, like even Hare Krishna people, they say that Soma is uh, curd, the milk curd, mixed with honey. So they pour a bit of curd and a bit of honey, and they mix it and they drink it from the palm of their hand. But unfortunately, they don't get the same effects as described in the Vedas. In the Vedas, Soma had two effects. It made you live forever. It kept eternal youthfulness. And it made you spiritual pure. And it gave a sort of a psychedelic high. What is Soma? I would love to try it. No? Even if not for the psychedelic high, I would like at least to get a bit of rejuvenation in my body. Shit. Nobody knows what Soma is. Even Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the guy from Transcendental Meditation, he said that Soma is seven Himalayan herbs. Bullshit. All the people who bought the Soma from Maharishi Ayurveda, they didn't become high spiritually and they didn't live for 300 years. So it's not Soma. So there was some primitives from India 5,000 years ago. They knew a formula which was natural. They didn't have reactors with polymeric reactions. and It was something from nature. It was a combination from nature. And they had a miracle remedy called Soma, which had amazing capacity. It's lost. It's lost. Nobody knows what Soma is. I've asked all the gurus in India who could have known if they had a hint about somebody who knew anything about Soma. Nobody knows anything. And therefore, that's why I say, maybe yoga will be lost. Maybe yoga will be too good for the Kali Yuga, which comes next for the deeper levels of Kali Yuga. Maybe Tantra is too good to be true and it will survive another 30 years and then it will be gone. Because there will all the authentic Tantra teachers will be dead or in prison. And uh, all the teachers who are outside, there will be fake tantrics. The world is full of fake Tantra as it is full of fake yoga and the fake lots of other things. And that's why I'm saying we don't know and it's all flowing exactly in this way in which Jesus describes that the truth is flowing from the source. We'll talk more about this as we restart from this paragraph next time. Thank you all for resisting and bearing with some of these tougher things coming from Jesus. And with this we have finished for tonight. I will see you further on in the activities of Agama.